therapy and counseling, and I suppose all of those things has its merits, but I think the Bible has an answer. As a matter of fact, I know the Bible has an answer. Well, we spent a couple of Wednesday nights on this subject, but there's been quite a break in between, and I, I regret that, and I'm not going to make an effort tonight to review. Um, it, it would take too much time to bring the whole thing back into focus, but I'm going to start tonight at a point where hopefully all of you will be able to pick up and uh, follow along. I'm very passionate about this material. And uh, I know there's a lot of people in our society and there's a lot of people in the church that deal with this malady every single day. And um, if God chooses to heal and take it completely away, thanks be to God. But if he chooses to allow people to live with it, then I believe the Bible gives some answers and it can give some helps that can be very powerful if you'll engage them and apply them. Since it's been a while, I would like to read our scripture setting found in Lamentations chapter 3, uh, verse 19. Jeremiah said, Remembering mine affliction and my misery, the wormwood and the gall. The word wormwood there means intense bitterness. And I'll say in passing quickly that depression is a horrible malady that's so prevalent in our society today. But I think bitterness is, is, is a very close friend. And if you are suffering tonight with bitterness, the Bible has an answer and you can be liberated. And everyone say amen. Verse 20, Jeremiah said, My soul hath them still in remembrance and is humbled in me. This I recall to my mind. Therefore have I hope. This I recall to my mind. Therefore have I hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. I don't know what that means to you, but it means everything to me. God never runs out of compassion for the human race. Thank God he doesn't. He went on to say in verse 23, they are new. The compassions of God are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in him. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. I think it's an incredible scripture setting. I want to begin tonight, and it's taken me a long time to get to this point in this Bible study. I've been through this for several Wednesday nights to get here. But I want to present to you tonight several sources of hopelessness. The sources of hopelessness, and which the byproduct of hopelessness is. Depression. 
when people feel hopeless. So to help us understand depression a little better, I want to present to you tonight, take a few moments for you to think about where it comes from, what its sources are. There are several. I'm going to mention several things here tonight, but I want you to notice that every one of these things that I will mention have a common characteristic, and that is that all of the sources of depression in one way or another are expressions of personal pride. Bottom line is that nobody really wants to be sick. Nobody really wants anything wrong with them. They want to be in control. They want to have their act together. Nobody wants to really admit. One of the greatest difficulties that doctors have in even diagnosing someone with depression is their refusal to admit it. Did I have the symptoms? Did I have, I'm experiencing things that would indicate that I have it. People want to slough it off and say, no, it's not that bad, et cetera, et cetera. You'd be surprised at how many people here tonight, as a matter of fact, statistics would tell us that one out of every six people here tonight are depressed, one out of six. That's why I'm teaching, because it's such a uh, prevalent malady in our society. The first source of depression, the first source of depression is simply this. I can't get what I want. You didn't see that coming, did you? Y'all was looking for words that long and this long PhD, DDD, whatever kind of explanation. The first source of depression is when I can't get what I want. I'm sure all of you have heard Rodney Dangerfield's famous line, I get no respect. Well, it's a funny line as long as it's not true. When it becomes true, it ceases to be funny. Nothing is more depressing than to feel that nobody respects you. No one's pride, and I'm not talking about a gaudy, vain pride. I'm just talking about human decency, okay? You care about yourself. You don't have a chip on your shoulder. You're not arrogant. I just care about myself. I care about the way I look. I care about the way people perceive me. Everybody here has that feature. If you don't, I need to send you to somebody. <laughs> you need to care about yourself if you don't. It doesn't matter what your stature is made of. It doesn't matter what you think and all of that. You want people to respect you. You want people to accept you. No one's pride can take a total rejection. Some of you may disagree, but I believe you won't disagree with this, but it's the next statement. I believe Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. Jesus said, I was, he would, the Bible said about him that he was tempted or tried in all points like as we are, yet without sin. One writer believes that when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane going through those agonizing moments before the cross, that he literally experienced a severe state of depression. He was a man. As a man he hungered, as a man he thirsted, 
As a man, he got tired, he got frustrated, he got angry, he got happy. He leaped for joy. I don't believe he leaped to get it. I believe he leaped because he had it. I believe he was human enough that when it came to that final hour of total rejection by the human race, blood started squirting out of the pores of his skin and running down his body. And he started pleading, let this cup pass from me. I can't get through this moment. Sad times. Now we're sitting here on soft chairs and in air conditioned building and probably most of us just ate dinner somewhere and feel pretty good. So it's kind of hard to imagine where he was at at that point. But it wasn't a picnic. Human pride, human decency cannot handle total rejection. I have worked with people in times past that was literally suicidal because one or two people rejected him. People came down. Y'all on board with me? Okay. I got to hurry. We've got a lot of material to cover tonight. <coughs> so maybe it isn't respect that you can't get. But sometimes there's other things that's at least as devastating I was really moved with this story that I'm going to share with you tonight and it's about a lady named Florence Latower it's a story of her two boys listen very carefully always the optimist this attractive intelligent vivacious woman had married well the wedding pictures of Florence and her prominent New York banker groom appeared in Life magazine the young couple prospered in business and at home, being blessed by two beautiful daughters. Then Florence gave birth to the apple of his father's eye, Frederick Jerome Latower III. He was all a parent could want in a son until he was about eight months old. Then something went desperately wrong with Frederick. He began to scream fitfully. He couldn't sit up. His eyes glazed over. He stopped smiling. After running several tests, the doctor told the Latower family that their son was hopelessly brain damaged. As kindly as he could, the doctor advised them to put him away, to put him in a home and forget about him, that they could always try for another son. They were stunned, couldn't believe it. Surely somebody somewhere could fix the problem that their son was having. The doctor assured them that this was one problem neither their money nor their willpower could do anything about. The baby was hopeless, hopeless. That was a brand new word in the Florence Latower vocabulary, and she refused to accept it. They did, however, have a second son, and the mother poured her love out on him. Then one week after Freddie uh, died at two years of age, she picked her baby Larry up from his nap, and to her horror, she saw that same blank look, the same glazed eyes, and the same failure to respond. The doctor struggled for words. 
I don't know how to say this, Florence, but I'm afraid he has the same thing as his brother. Another futile round of hospitals, and again, there was nothing that could be done. Florence said that, that life stopped for her, and she fell into a deep depression. Everything she had valued before now seemed totally meaningless. Their money, their 12-room house, the wall-to-wall carpeting, all of it. She couldn't get, she could not get what she wanted the most. That was the health and the life of her sons. Two of them hopelessly brain damaged. The other was dead. Only much later and only with the help of the Lord was Florence able to pick her life up again. Now she has been God's blessing all over America as she shares her story of failed pride, depression, and a renewal in the Lord Jesus Christ. She said concerning and the huge desire of wanting her babies alive and normal, She said over and over, I can't get what I want. Nothing could be more admirable than this desperate love of a mother for her handicapped sons. But she couldn't have what she wanted. Others plunge into despair because they can't get the job they want or they can't get the job they need or the promotion that they think they deserve or the woman if you're a man that you dream of or the man if you're a woman that you dream of or the food goes, or the, the list goes on and on and on. You can't get what you want. I've worked with people in marriage that they thought they married the person of their dreams and they realized at some point this is not This person isn't what I wanted. And now they live the rest of their life feeling deprived. And their personal pride is injured and damaged because they can't get what they want. I don't know if this is resonating with you folks here tonight, but this is so real in our society today. It's amazing at how real this is and how consumed people come, how focused they become with everything they do possess, with everything they have been blessed with, people will literally fall into a dark, deep state of depression because they can't have what they want. The second source of depression is when people say, I can't keep what I don't want to lose. I can't keep what I don't want to lose. Y'all bear with me. I'm going to go into the jungle here and find my bottle of water. Ten cents right here on the floor. give somebody my 10 cents worth tonight. The second source of depression is I can't keep 
what I don't want to lose. You may think this is saying the same thing, and it kind of is, but there is a difference. It's on my mind because of someone that I heard about. He was a farmer in the Midwest part of the, our country, and he was about to lose his farm. The past few years haven't been fine, uh, uh, great to farmers anyway. And so this one Iowa man living in the state of Iowa, you may remember reading this story or hearing about it, he was losing his farm because of economic situations and what have you. He couldn't pay his bills and his farm was going to be repossessed. He literally went berserk over the prospect of losing the family place. He killed his wife. He killed a fellow farmer, then drove to town, killed the bank president, and then finally shot himself. He could not cope with losing what had been his his entire life. I hope I have, there's people here tonight that's smart enough that can understand. I don't have time to, to go in every direction of, of this material. But I hope you can understand, for example, it is so common with married couples who's been married in excess of 40 and 50 years, when one passes away, it's so very common that just soon after that, the other passes on. They fall into a state of mind and they, they cannot accept the fact that I cannot keep what I didn't want to lose. Y'all understand that? We, we downplay and discount children, young children, who lose their pet. But that pet could have meant everything to them. And they grieve and they hurt and they, that's all they can focus on is that I did not, I can't keep what I don't want to lose. Let me take a moment here tonight and... I do apologize to you people. I work hours on a PowerPoint presentation, particularly for this part of this study. And uh, I'm so happy that I've become an Apple computer person. But when I sent Casey the file, I forgot to convert it to a, dot, to a uh, way that they can open it up on our church computers that are not Apple. So we have no PowerPoint here tonight. But I'm going to try to explain this where you can understand it. Some of you may have heard of a Dr. Thomas Holmes. Dr. Thomas Holmes came up with a stress test process. As a psychiatrist with the University of Washington School of Medicine, Dr. Holmes developed a scale to measure the relative stress induced by various changes in a person's life. He calculates that if you accumulate, listen very carefully, he calculates that if you accumulate more than 200 points on his scale, then you become a prime candidate for either physical or emotional illness or depression. Among his items includes this following list. Listen carefully. Now, if you take his stress test and your cumulative score is 200 points or more, then you could be considered 
depressed, or if you want to use physical or emotional illness, that's fine too. All right, so here's his scale. The loss or the death of a spouse could impact you 100 points. So if you've experienced the death of a spouse, and if anyone has here tonight, in all due respect, I, I want to be very kind. But let's suppose you lose a spouse. That's 100 points on this scale. If you don't deal with that grief, if you don't deal with that hurt of losing a spouse, you bury it, which is what most people do with grief, and you have to understand about grief. You don't go around grief. You don't go over it. You don't go under it. You can defer it, but sooner or later, you're going to go through it. And the sooner you go through the process of grief, the better off you are. So you, you lose a spouse, and two or three years later, you remarry. Two or three years after that, you divorce. On Dr. Holmes' scale, the loss of a spouse is 100 points. Divorce is 75 points. So those two experiences alone can cause a person to fall into a state of depression. Now, I'm not trying to overaccentuate depression, and I'm not trying to analyze everybody here tonight to see if you are or not. But there's probably people here that are. You deal with it. And on some level every single day, but you won't admit it. You don't want to believe it. You feel weird a lot of times. You feel sad. You feel hurt. You can't sleep or you sleep too much. You can't stay focused, etc. You could be suffering with depression. It's not a bad thing. It don't mean you're bad. It is a bad thing, but it don't mean you're a bad person. So it don't take much in life to tip you over the scale. That's the point. Uh, marital separation, not necessarily a divorce. Divorce is 75 points, but marital separation is 65 points. That's why it so impacts people emotionally when these things happen. I hope you can see that. He even goes into if you have to serve time in jail, just giving up your freedom can impact you on his scale, 63 points. The death of a close family member, 63 points. Getting fired from your job on Dr. Holmes' scale is 47 points. These things impact people. And, and I'm going to be real candid here tonight. We as our special, I'm going to say this very sarcastically and cynical, but I, and I mean it this way. But we're these dogmatic Pentecostals. Hallelujah, bless God. Acts 2.38, and I believe in one God, and... Man, I live this life and I live that life. And brother, if you're depressed by the name of Jesus, you need to get over it. And that's how we deal with it. There's someone here tonight, and I'm not going to point that person out, but went to a pastor for counseling over the loss of their father. You know what the pastor said? Pray about it. And get over it. I lost my daddy when I was 16. And it took more than that. And I'm still not over it. We have to understand, folks. I'm not here to over-accentuate psychology and all that blah, blah, blah. 
And we only, as Christian people, our main focus is a person's spirituality. And I'm all about that. But I can prove to you in Scripture and through other sources that if a person is not right emotionally, it doesn't really matter how much Holy Ghost you put in them. Y'all on board? You wonder why people shut themselves up in their house? I know a lady tonight that used to live in the area and has since moved out of the state, but gets so depressed, her own children don't hear from her for in excess of six months at a time unless they go and just beat on the door and beat on the door. She's so depressed. Won't get help, won't admit it. Has a bajillion dollars in the bank, won't get help. I believe Jesus indicated through his earthly ministry he came as God, but he also came as a man. And I really believe with all of my heart that sometimes he touched people as God, but I believe there was other times he touched people as a man. You just need to feel the hand of somebody on your shoulder that says, I love you, and I know you're going through a hard time, and I'm going to walk you through it. I'm going to be right by your side. I'm going to tell you people here, I don't know why, but God has blessed me to be the pastor of got to be the best church on the planet but he's put around me people that are patient that are kind that are long-suffering that are encouraging that are inspiring they're not judgmental they don't blow you out of the water when you fail they don't blow you out of the water when you don't feel good they don't blow you out of the water when you're having a bad day I thank God for that and I want to tell you it takes as much Christianity to be compassionate towards the spirituality of someone as it does to be concerned about their emotional state. And to look at somebody with a brash, apostolic, look down your nose, proud point of view and say, hey, I know you're hurting, but by God, this coming Sunday, you ought to be over it. If you had faith in God, you'd be over it. It's not because God's weak and God's not able. Sometimes our faith gets real weak, man, and it's easier said than done. And oftentimes I've lived long enough and I've pastored long enough to have seen it. I've witnessed it to where some of these really dogmatic spiritual people that tells everybody else how to live for God, when something calamity comes into their life, they lose their way just like that. It's hard when you can't keep what you don't want to lose. Everybody say amen. I don't, I don't have it in front of me. I don't have it in front of me, but I can see it. <clears throat> so is it any wonder then that when you sustain an important loss, you also suffer from a mild and sometimes more severe form of depression. Let me add something else right here, and I want everybody to set up straight and listen with both ears. When a person falls into this emotional malady, I have a lot of respect for that. It's real easy when you get depressed 
over things that I've mentioned and even other things. Your mind and even the devil will do a less pile on situation. And so when you can't keep or you don't want to lose what you, you can't keep, oftentimes we fall into this state of despair And then we want to pile on guilt on top of that. That man, if I hadn't have done this, and if I hadn't have gone there, and if I hadn't have said this, and if I hadn't have acted this way in this situation. So not only you're depressed, but you, you, you heap, we have a tendency to heap guilt. Parents do that. They do it tremendously. When their kids quit serving God, when their kids going through puberty, become this emotional octopus. Man, there's things in every direction. You, you, what, what happened? You know, my sweet little darling went into the bedroom, went to bed last night, and they came out this morning. They're crazy. Where did I go wrong? You didn't go right. But people do this. Parents take responsibility. I mean, the parent can be 80 years old and their son will be 58 years old and he does something stupid and the parent gets all depressed. Where did I go wrong? Guilt is an easy trap to fall into when you're in a low state of despair. But it does no good and it changes nothing. I hope everybody can understand that. So don't lecture yourself. Don't lecture yourself with these too frequent words of condemnation and say, after all, and I blame this on preachers, I've done it and I try to not do it. I've, I try to be cognizant of these things. But after all, I'm a Christian, and Christians are always supposed to smile and never be discouraged and never have a problem in the world. I don't know who invented that concept, but um, there's a lot of people in Scripture that weren't Christians then. Do you people have any idea what Simon Peter went through those first three, or those three days that Jesus was in the grave? I denied that man, not once, not twice, but three times. You talk about it to say, no wonder he, uh, out, he, he didn't outrun John. John outran him, but when they got to the sepulcher, Peter went inside. I've got to get my Jesus back, man. The third source of depression, listen carefully. I think this is probably more applicable tonight than maybe the other opinions. People can literally get depressed because they have what they want. I have what I want. Well, that's surprising that sometimes depression comes because I have what I want. Here's the problem, and here's where it makes sense. I've reached what I was after. I've accomplished my goals in life, and I don't have any more. More than one person has discovered that the two greatest tragedies in life are this. First, not getting what you want, but secondly, getting what you want. Back in the 1950s, Robert Young was involved in one of the most bitter proxy fights in our country. It seemed that he wanted to own and run a railroad, so he bought one for himself. It was a bitter fight, but in time, 
he took control of the New York Central from its owners. Unfortunately, after Robert obtained the railroad, he found out that he was not able to manage it. He couldn't make the trains run on time, nor could he make them run within budget. He got what he wanted. He got what he wanted. But one day in his Palm Beach home, he took a 20-gauge shotgun and terminated his life. Depression is a subject most people of any age know a little something about. Usually, it has to do, usually, it has to do with the completion of some goal, some accomplishment, and suddenly having nothing else to strive for. This is the essence, some say, of midlife crisis. Youth has a future. Youth makes its plans. Youth sees visions and dreams great dreams. Middle age settles down. It has accumulated some possessions. It's fairly satisfied. It isn't going anywhere. It isn't living towards any purpose and wonders why the joy has gone out of life. If that's where you are tonight... The problem may well be that you have gotten what you wanted. And now you don't have anything else really to live for. No more goals, no more aspirations. Unfortunately, tonight I can't speak of the retirement years. And uh, to some's glee and to others' disappointments, uh, I've decided that I don't want to retire. <laughs> Man, I got to put up with this guy now till he dies or has a stroke and goes in a nursing home somewhere. Sister Murphy and I were talking before church tonight trying to determine how many years I have left. And she was more generous than I thought, man. I, <laughs> I hope it works out that way. But uh, I don't plan to retire. I don't plan to retire from a call of God. I know pastors that do. I'm not judging that this is just my my thing so neither do I not know now let me explain retirement retirement to me is not going back to the job anymore my idea here at grace is to just slowly fade into the sunset where maybe once a year Somebody will let me get up and say, praise the Lord with slobber and no teeth and all that stuff. Huh? There's the old pastor. Praise the Lord, Brother Murphy. So I probably won't know the feeling of retirement, and I'm cool with that. So I can't speak of the retirement years from personal experience, but as a minister, I've often heard the blues from many people who have reached this plateau. Retirees, your problem may originate in the fact that you've got what you wanted. For years, you planned for retirement, but you didn't plan what happens after retirement. So now you've got what you wanted, and it isn't as good, perhaps, as you thought it would be. So you have a tendency to give up. I just wish I could die. I just wish God would take me home. I've heard people say that. Sometimes we do too much drinking as retired people, too much eating, have too much time on our hands, too much recreation, 
But you have no new goals, nothing to sacrifice for, nothing for which to get up early or to work late for. You feel proud of what you were, but you don't always feel proud of what you are. We all need somebody to need us. We all need somebody to need us. And I've heard more than one precious elderly person say, I just don't feel any value. My kids are grown. My grandkids are grown. No one comes to see me. No one comes to visit. Everybody's too busy. If I had any value, if I had something to give, they'd come. But I just don't have any value, and that's why they don't. So you got what you wanted. You're happy with what you were, but you're not happy with what you are. And so when we realize or feel like no one needs us, no one depends on us, no one is there to call out the best from us, the alternative is depression. The fourth source of depression, this is incredibly applicable tonight, is I refuse to face the facts. Does anybody know the one word that defines that sentence? Delusional. I refuse to face the facts. And I need to be rather blunt here. It's usually not a problem for me, but I just want to give you a fair warning. Sometimes depression comes because we refuse to face the facts. Crisis, losses, they come to all of us. We cannot make them disappear by refusing to admit it happened. I want to be very careful here tonight, but I know someone, they're deceased. Their spouse passed away a couple of years before they did. The spouse died, the, the remaining living spouse fell into this, I refuse to believe my spouse is dead. She went to the car dealership. This is a true story. I saw the car, I've driven the car. She bought her spouse a brand new car. Had their spouse's name engraved on a license plate and parked it on the carport because they were convinced that one day their spouse was coming back. This is real, folks. This is real. People sometimes will go through a divorce and they can't accept it. I just cannot believe my spouse left me. They refuse to accept the fact and they live the rest of their life in this perpetual state of it can't be and it must be temporary and I know any day they're going to come back and they're going to return back to the house and things are going to be like it was before, even better and, and I'm going to make it better and you can't accept the fact. One of the most difficult mindsets to work with in people, either emotionally or spiritually, is when they're delusional. They can't face what has happened to them. But people notice when they refuse to face the facts that things don't get better. 
when people learn they have a terminal illness. Can't believe this is happening to me. I'm not going to accept it. I'm not going to tolerate it. The disease won't be willed away. You can add more to this list. People don't want to face impending financial disaster. Somehow or another, our president right now don't want to face the facts that, that our country is headed towards impending financial disaster. Been telling people every day it's getting better. Found out today that we're projected to go another $1.1 trillion in debt again this year, fourth year in a row. But we can have problems with our children and just don't want to face the facts. We can have a loved one addicted to substance, drugs, alcohol, whatever it is. Don't want to accept it. I refuse to accept it. You can't talk to them about it. You can't help them. If you can't face the facts, if you can't face reality, then you can never come out of that place. So you live in a perpetual state of delusional depression. So... If I haven't gotten you all depressed tonight by this Bible study, <clears throat> I want to give you one more source of it. This fifth source of depression is when people say, and I, I hear this regularly, this pastor, I hear it. This is why I want to teach this material, folks. It, I, I hear this stuff all the time. But people say, I haven't amounted to anything. I have no value. I'm not worth anything. This also generally affects people in their middle and later years, although young people aren't immune to it. It hits when we take stock and find that huge gaping chasm between our aspirations and our achievements. There's a huge divide in what we've aspired to do and what we actually did. And people don't feel valued. This is going to sound real interesting to you folks, but I'm going to name some people here tonight, and you may recognize some of their names. It's what Winston Churchill expressed when, as an old man celebrating his birthday, he said to his daughters, I have achieved, I have achieved a great deal to achieve nothing in the end. That's the way people feel. I haven't amounted to anything. Sir Robert Louis Stevenson, author of such popular books as Treasure Island and Kidnap, he wrote his own epitaph. He said, Here lies one who meant well, who tried a little and failed much. Cecil Rhodes, who opened up South Africa to the white man, said as he lay dying, so little done, so much to do. I'll be honest with you guys here tonight, and I've, I make a joke out of it. I, I make light of it. I've had a few serious conversations about it. But it really bothered me when I turned 40. It did. I mean, I took that over-the-hill thing serious. <laughs> I was depressed. I don't want to get old. I have a poem in my office called Desiderata, and I had it memorized at one point. Now I can't remember what I just fixed to say. But But there's a line in that poem that says to gracefully surrender the things of youth. I didn't do a good job, man. I fought it kicking and screaming. And um, 
We used to have an above-ground swimming pool in our backyard, and when my 18-year-old son at that time took me down and about drowned me under the water playing, I decided I ain't going to fight with him no more, and it just reminded me that I'm old. I fat and flabby and can't do a thing for myself anymore. You know, I, so, and I do sometimes catch slobber running out of my mouth. I mean, it's pitiful, and I still have all my teeth. <clears throat> I didn't want to get old. I didn't want to face it. But I've had to face the fact, and this is very grieving for a pastor to say, but I'm beginning to realize that I may expire before all of my dreams are accomplished in this life. I have so much hope of God doing great things in his church. And I pray that he'll bless me long enough to live long enough to see some of it happen. So enough with the reasons for depression. I like Philip Toynbee's approach. Having examined his own depression for its causes and ways to get rid of them, he begins searching for purposes in it, in his state of depression that he could fulfill. He concluded, listen very carefully, depression is often a sign, whether human or divine, that the life of the victim needs to be drastically changed, that acts of genuine contrition or repentance are called for. I have lived what I'm about to say. I'm a living, breathing example and illustration of what I'm about to say. If you don't like who you are, change don't sit there and tell me it can't be done. With some determination and some accountability, you can be whatever you want to be. And if you are depressed tonight, whatever lifestyle you've lived that got you there, change that lifestyle. This call for a change takes us back to the book of Lamentations where we learn that the writer has found the solution. A lot of commentaries believe that Jeremiah was depressed. I haven't heard anyone say lately that I, when I need some inspiration, I go to the book of Jeremiah or Lamentations. It's a very sad book. They're very sad, gloomy books, books of weeping and travail. But Jeremiah did say that in my state of sadness, grieved over the backslidden condition of the state of Israel and he could not get them back, could not get them back to God. He said, having remembered his affliction and bitterness, Jeremiah abruptly switched in verse 21 and said, yet in all of this gloomy state of despair, delusion, no value, no self-esteem, no self-worth, I can't get what I want. I can't have what I want. I can't keep what I want. I got to give up what I don't want to lose. The list is endless. Jeremiah said, yet this, in his state of gloomy depression, he said, yet this I call to mind. In other words, Jeremiah, and here's my Bible answer. Instead of letting his mind control him, he takes control of his mind. 
he begins to deliberately recall positive things even though nothing around him is positive. Sometimes affirmation don't come voluntarily. They just don't always pop into your head. Since my dad passed away, I've had a gloomy bend about me ever since. If you don't believe it, ask Brother Merrill. He's heard more of my moaning than anybody. And I've realized personally that when I reach those places, and I'm being very transparent here, but I go through times where I hate myself. I hate my personality. I see these people that walk around on puffy clouds of cotton all the time. They smile from ear to ear and don't have a problem on this planet. I wish we had a few here tonight. If some of you folks would smile once in a while, it would make me feel better. I'm, I'm, that's just a joke. I'm just but you know who I'm, these kind of people I'm talking about, just always bouncy. Every time you see them, man, you can see them in a far dark corner of Walmart, and they're just, and they make me so tired, I don't know what to do, man. It just makes me tired. You can't be that happy all the time. It's just not possible. Come step into my world for a minute. I'll calm you down. But I realized, I looked in the mirror one morning about two years after my dad died, and I faced the fact. I called my own name. I said, Glenn, your daddy's dead, and you'll never see him again on this planet. Get over it. Now, from that day till this, I've walked in a different direction. But sometimes you st I struggle with a gloomy bent about things. I always see the glass half full. I fight with that. So I systematically make myself think positive. <laughs> this old dumb, ignorant, uneducated North Baton Rouge boy can do it. You can do it. I have learned this. I have learned this, that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I have learned that. Let me hurry. Uh, I could probably wrap this up in about five minutes. Jeremiah determined, yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. And he mentions the source because of the great love of Christ. We are not consumed because his compassion never fails. I don't know what that means to you, but God has carried me on the wings of compassion more times than I can express. When I was down on my luck and my lip was dragging the floor and I had gloom and doom written all over me, I'm sure that irks God sometimes, especially when he could say, I filled you up with the Holy Ghost. I washed your sins away. Why don't you get over it? You've got me on the inside of you. And you're acting like that. But Jeremiah said his compassion never fails. It's new every morning. What's new every morning? Well, in the first place, morning is new 
every morning. Isn't it awesome that you don't have to repeat yesterday unless you want to? But if you don't want to repeat how horrible you felt yesterday, guess what? I've got some good news. You don't have to. It's a choice. Every one of us waking up sometimes and feel like a fire hydrant and all our friends are dogs. You can either wake up every morning and say, good morning, Lord, or... You can say, good Lord, it's morning. It's your choice. You can do with tomorrow what you want to do. And if you don't have nothing to do tomorrow, plan something and give yourself some value and some worth and put yourself back out there that you can be a blessing and minister to people. You have more to give than you can imagine. And there's hurting people all around us that need somebody to make up their mind and say, I'm not going to focus on my negative. I'm going to focus on their negative. And if I'm going to get them out of their negative, I've got to be positive. God, I know what I'm talking about. Did you ever give thanks for the fact that you get to start a brand new day every day and you have the choice to make of it what you want to. And the psalmist said, this is the day the Lord hath made. It's your choice what you do with it. You can rejoice and be exceedingly glad or you can sit around your house and mope and moan and groan and wish the whole world would go away, which it's not anytime soon. Put your feet on the floor. Okay, when you feel arthritis as a result of putting your feet on the floor, give thanks for it because you can feel arthritis. I used to work with a girl that was paralyzed from her sternum down. She learned to do a lot of things by herself, one of the most courageous people I've ever met. She was in a wheelchair that had to lean back and if you bumped her a little bit, she'd fall out of it. She's an incredible draft horse. And uh, she got in the tub one night by herself and didn't realize that all she had turned on was the hot water. She couldn't feel it. And was scalded bad. Was in the hospital with severe burns for days. Be thankful that you can feel your pain. Depends on how you look at it, man. It's your choice on how you look at it. I gotta hurry. Like me, do you grumble about your bifocals? I bought a pair of reading glasses yesterday at the drugstore. I can't keep up with them. Everybody has that problem. I have them all over the house, and I can't keep up with them. So I bought another pair. I don't know why, because I can't keep up with the ones I got. But I'm thankful that I can see. I may need help seeing, but I can see. Do you complain that you're deaf or hard of hearing in one ear? Or do you thank God because you can hear out of the other one? Are you upset because somebody has hurt your feelings? Or do you thank God for the faithful friends that do stand by you, even when you aren't worthy of their loyalty? Depends on how you want to look at it. 
little things. Little things, the touch of somebody saying, I love you. Like breathing in and breathing out on your own is an awesome thing to be thankful for. Somebody said, and I'm concluding, I'm not done, but I'll, I'll stop this. I've gone too long. If you define satisfaction in terms of the number or quality of ego-satisfying status symbols you have accumulated, for example, a fancy car and a big home, whatever, or if you would like to do that, your pride is preparing you for a fall. And that's why Paul so wisely and aptly wrote, I have learned, I have learned that whatsoever state I'm in, therewith to be content. When you can take control of your mind, you can. You choose what to think about. The Bible gives a long list of things that we can think about, virtue and honesty and purity and all of that. Think, the Bible said, on these things. I apologize I've kept you long, but I wanted to, to get through the heart of this so we can move on to something else. I hope it's been a blessing. I hope it's helped somebody here tonight. If you didn't get all of this, it'll be on our website in a few days. You're welcome to go listen to it again. But uh, take this material. I'm going to ask you folks to take this material, get familiar with it. If it don't apply to you, you either know somebody or you will know somebody that's struggling with depression. You can help them. You can. I'm giving you a tool to help them. It's not hard. 